Well, it's an honor to be here. Um, it's an honor to be the son-in-law of such a man. When you marry into a family like that, man, God's just showing off, really. So, <laughs> um, so I'm very thankful to be here. Um, in my church, we're, we're teaching through Philippians, and uh, Kenny told me two things when, when I asked him kind of the details about this church. Our church is very kind of orderly church. You know, we have, we have a lot of things happen on stage, so usually I have to know how many minutes. And Kenny's first thing was, preach as long as you want. And uh, that is an incredibly dangerous thing to say, um, but he doesn't mind. And then the second thing he told me is, wander around wherever you want. That's, they're used to that. And I will not be taking that piece of advice, so don't worry. I won't sidle up beside you. Um, I'll be staying right about here or here because um, that's just the way I, I do it. But we've been uh, teaching through Philippians at my church. My, my senior pastor is preaching through it, and then he asked me to teach a class uh, that goes a little deeper because when, uh, I don't know if you've ever thought of this, but when you preach a sermon, usually whatever text is in front of you, you're picking out the, 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 the main thing that you think will really change hearts and lives from that text, but there's lots of other stuff, right? If you've read the Bible a lot, you know there's layer upon layer, and so he knows that's what I love to do. I love to, to dig deep and to do that, and so and, and teaching verse by verse through a book is about my favorite thing in the world, and so that's what I've been doing, and uh, I'm currently, next Sunday, I'll be on the passage we're going to talk about today, which is Philippians 2, 1 through 11. But because I love to teach verse through verse, um, I can't just start there. So I was trying to think, what's the fastest way I can kind of introduce you to what we've seen so far in Philippians? And uh, one of the things I'm doing as I uh, teach through this book is, is committing it to memory. And so I'm going to just say over you the first chapter um, and then through the text we are at today. And so you can follow along if you want, but I would encourage you just to, to let the word kind of wash over you. Uh, we're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 1 and read through uh, 2 verse 11, okay? And I'm in the ESV uh, because I memorized it. I had to pick a version. That's the one I'm in. So, um, so yeah, so this is Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making that prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the very first day until now. I want you to know that what has happened to me uh, oh, so and I, and I am sure of this, sorry, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with all the affection of Jesus Christ. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of envy, and selfish ambition. Not sincerely, but seeking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Christ Jesus, this will turn out for my deliverance. 
as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but that in full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. If I'm to remain in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which should I choose? I really can't tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. That is far better. (laughs) But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have reason, ample cause to boast in Christ because of my coming to you again. Only let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents, This is a clear sign to them of their destruction and of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you in the name of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and hear now that I still have. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection or sympathy for me, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and with one Spirit. Do nothing from selfish ambition or rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. Have this mindset among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, didn't consider his equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being found and born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. In heaven and earth, under the earth, every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, these are Paul's words. This is also your word to us. And Father, this is probably the hardest command in the Bible couched in such glory and love that it slides right by us. (laughs) And so this morning, as we look at this and we try to figure out what maturity in Christ looks like, will you speak to us not only of your glory and, and our joy that we believe in that, but of how we are made to image that glory. Father, show us tangibly how to do that this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we're in Philippians 2. Now, what you heard in Philippians 1 is a very precious relationship. If you've never studied uh, the background of the book of Philippians, Paul planted the Philippian church on his second missionary journey. It was a church he had no intention of planting. He was in Asia Minor, which is Turkey today, okay? And he was going around to the different cities preaching about Jesus And he had a dream of a man in Macedonia, a man that he never meets, right? A man that he probably never even sees, that is asking him, 
please come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, Macedonia is currently uh, uh, Greece, right? The, The little peninsula of Greece. And so Paul talks this over with Silas and Luke and Timothy who are with him, and they decide this is of the Lord. So let's leave Asia Minor and head to Greece. And so they do. And Paul, uh, like a good practical person, starts to seek out a larger city. And if you know the ministry of Paul, um, because of the shared worldview that, that Jews have in understanding God, he usually, the first thing he does when he gets to a city is look for the synagogue, right? He looks for a synagogue where they already know the God of the Bible and begins to expose how Christ is the fulfillment of the law and, and all these other things. Now, there's no synagogue in Philippi. Philippi was a, uh, a very important Grecian city, right, uh, in the Grecian Empire. Rome had taken it over a couple centuries before. And in order to make it a very patriotic city, because it was an important city in that region, Rome had said, hey, if you're a soldier and you want to retire, we'll give you a free house in Philippi, right? So... So it was made up of a lot of very committed, patriotic Romans and then all of these Grecian people who had been there. But it's a prominent city, lots of business, um, but very allegiant to Rome, okay? And, and so Christianity, which has one God, is very unpatriotic to the Roman and the Greek because uh, patriotism was wrapped up with worship of Caesar and worship of those pantheons of gods, And so it was a hard place to be a Christian, and it was a hard place to be a Jew. So there was no synagogue there. However, Paul begins to walk along the river in Philippi where people would gather to pray, mainly pagans, right? But he knew people would gather to pray, and he finds a women's Bible study. Now, Now, think about this. Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke, probably some other dudes, they crash this women's Bible study. Because they're, they're God-fears, which means they believe in the God of the Old Testament, but they're, they're Greek or Asian or different. And so Lydia is one of the women who's there, and she becomes the first convert in the continent of Europe. The first Christian is Lydia, who's actually an Asian woman, and this church is born from there. And so from the outset, the church is made up not of Jewish people and not really of Grecian people, but a mixture of people. From the outset, they're made up of a very diverse group of people. Socioeconomically, Lydia was very wealthy. The next person is a slave girl. The next person is a Roman jailer, right? So they're just completely diverse. And maybe for those reasons, I'm suspicious that the fact that they had nothing in common except Jesus from the very beginning meant that they became the strongest church that Paul planted. So for that was in about 49 and Paul is now, and when he writes this letter, he's in a, a Roman jail about 12 years later. And that whole period, this church has not really gone through all the problems that Paul's other churches have gone through. You know, sin in the church, fighting with each other, factions, arguing about who's the best Bible teacher. We see all those kind of things riddled through the Bible. It doesn't mean this church was perfect, but it does mean this church was consistently strong. And you hear that in his opening You've been a faithful partner in ministry from the very first day for the last 12 years. So they have a very precious relationship with Paul. And you can hear that, right? He's like, I love you. I don't just love you. I love you the way Jesus loves you. That's a pretty tall standard, right? I love you the same way Jesus loves you. Uh, I want everything good for you, and I'd happily die to bring it about. That's basically what he's saying. So they have a very special relationship, and the context for this letter is somebody from the church has been sent to Paul, hearing that he's in prison, worried about him. His name is Epaphroditus, right? One of those fun names from the Bible. Epaphroditus gets sent to minister to Paul while he's in prison and really to find out, is he okay? And so they have a lot of concerns for Paul, him being in prison. Now, the concerns they have are probably these. Number one... Think about if you had a loved one in prison. How are you? Are you, are you getting beaten? Are you, are you in terrible shape? That's probably the most simple, heartfelt uh, concern that they have. The second one, though, is they're a partner with him in the gospel. In other words, it's hard to imagine anybody like Paul today, but imagine like a Billy Graham in the 1960s, and Billy Graham is shut down from preaching. Well, what would hopefully every Christian say? Who is going to step up and do that and preach to thousands all around the world? Well, Paul is the evangelist to the Gentiles, right? He's the apostle. So obviously their concern is also going to be, what about the ministry? If Paul's in prison and he can't preach, 
Isn't the gospel going to be hindered by that? Because they're his partner, and they have been for 12 years. Um, the third thing is, it wasn't, it, this wasn't a minor thing to get thrown into a Roman jail. Okay? It's not like here where you, know, you get picked up and you go to jail, and the death sentence is not anywhere near your point of view. If you got thrown in the jail in a Roman prison, everybody wondered if you're going to make it out alive. Okay? Because if it was something that was considered against Rome, and that could be almost anything, then that could be, we're going to just put you to death. We're not going to mess with it. And so they're also worried if he's going to die. Okay, They love him, and maybe he's going to die, and you hear that in chapter 1. And then the last thing they're worried about is, is more of an interpersonal one, which we could feel if one of our uh, loved ones was in prison. Are we going to ever see Paul again? This is the guy who started our church. He's been here at least two other times to minister to us. Will we ever see him? Again, So in that first chapter, as a good, faithful friend, what he's really doing is saying, let me address all of your concerns. (laughs) Now, what's interesting is Paul doesn't say, this is how I'm doing. Uh, The food's okay. And think about, now now put yourself in Paul's position. You're in prison. Somebody writes to you. What are you going to be writing back to them? Food's terrible. This, This guard they've got me strapped to is an an idiot, you know, whatever. I mean, you're going to be thinking about your circumstances, right? Paul never mentions a word about his own circumstances. Not one word. And he knows that's probably their most pressing thing. Are you sick? Are Are you hurting? Are you going to die? And he doesn't mention a word of that. You know what he does do? He jumps to their second concern, which is, what about the ministry? And you know what he says? The ministry is doing better than ever before. That's basically what he says. How? If the greatest evangelist and preacher on the face of the earth can't talk, Paul says, my life is proclaiming Jesus to people who would never have listened to my sermons. So there was about 10,000 Roman soldiers in uh, the city of Rome, and they had to swap off garden him. Now, he's not evangelizing them, probably, but every guest that he has, probably while he's writing this letter, this letter, there's a guy chained to him. And that, what, it, what he's saying is, is it's made it through all of Caesar's household and all these 10,000 guards that this Roman citizen is here chained up for a guy named Jesus. Now, what does that make you say if you're a Roman citizen? You're like, it's really hard to get chained up as a Roman citizen. Who is that, <laughs> right? And so Paul is like, Thousands of people who would never listen to me are seeing Christ in my suffering. And so the gospel's going forth like never before. He doesn't even stop there. The next thing he says is, the fact that I'm in prison has meant lots of other faithful believers are saying, we got to step up. we got to preach. Because Paul's not here. Have you ever noticed that? When there's a dynamic leader, sometimes it can take boldness away from those that are under him, just trusting Maybe you grew up that way, where you're like, oh, I, so-and-so needs Jesus. I'll bring him to church and let Kenny preach to them. Like, no, you preach to them, right? You, you speak to them about the reason you have hope in Jesus. And so the fact that Paul's been removed, God is actually using to embolden people to speak the word without fear. But then there's a third thing that's happening. There were people in Rome who didn't know Paul, right, and were very Jewish probably in their understanding of Jesus because Paul hadn't been there yet. So you remember, I don't know if you remember, Peter and the other apostles went through this really hard, soul-searching thing. You have to be Jewish to be a Christian, and that was a, that was a very confusing thing. Well, Paul hadn't been there, so there are some people that have heard about Paul, that he's, he's troublemaker, right? So Paul's now in Rome, and of course, he's got a reputation. So lots of people want to hear for themselves, right? Even if he's controversial, I want to hear for myself. But now that he's silenced in prison, all those that disagree with him are like, now's our chance to turn this Christian movement a different direction. So they're like, you heard about Jesus. Well, yeah, Jesus is great, but here's what it really means. Now, you would think that would be stressful for Paul. Uh, They're going to mess it all up, right? They're going to tell him something wrong. But what does Paul say? Doesn't matter. (laughs) People are talking about Jesus that wouldn't have been talking about it if I was out walking around. And God is faithful. God saves, not the perfect argument. It reminds me of uh, a guy I had in my ministry when I was teaching uh, in Austin, Texas, who came to faith while he was high on drugs, 
watching Louis Farrakhan on public access television, who's kind of a black supremacist. But what happened was, Louis Farrakhan, who also considers himself a preacher of the gospel, was talking about Jesus, right? Set, quoting him or something. And even in his high state, he's like, something spoke to him. He went and picked up his Bible, began to read, and God led him to the Lord. <laughs> so, so Paul, this isn't Paul saying doctrine doesn't matter, right? This is Paul saying, I trust the Spirit of God. Anytime the name of Jesus is being talked about, he can do his will. Now, if Paul was out of prison, he would be all over those people, right? Because he wants everybody to be faithful, and he would be correcting that, but that's not his job. He trusts, he puts that in the hands of the Lord, and he says, as long as Christ is being talked about, what can I complain about? Now, that kind of freedom from bitterness against enemies and freedom from, oh, no, my life calling is being hindered, right? He has none of that because he has the eyes that says, the only reason I exist is to see the kingdom of God and the advance of the gospel happen, and I see it all around me, so why do I care? Now, why is this important for the Philippians? Because they had good concerns, human concerns. How are you doing, Paul? Who's going to preach if you don't, right? All these things are good, rational concerns, but they're the wrong concern. Paul says, the only thing you should care about is not my comfort. It's not whether uh, I'm the best preacher or I'm out there leading the pack. It doesn't matter. What you should care about is the gospel of Jesus Christ is spreading and spreading and spreading, and the kingdom of God is being exalted in the hearts of people. And guess what? You may look at this and say, this is a bad year for me. I look at it and say, wow, my reach just tripled <laughs> by being silent in church, I mean, in, in prison. Okay, so that's kind of where the setup is. And you have to know that to understand what he's going to say. Because, because this was a very healthy church relative to Paul's other churches, unlike any other book, Philippians does something. It gives you an image of what it looks like to be mature in Jesus Christ. In other words, the bar that the book of Philippians sets is the highest that we see out of the teaching of Paul. In other words, if the gospel is true, what then is my final goal and what my life looks like? Paul is about to give them, in my opinion, the, the hardest command in the entire Bible to really live out. Okay, And that's what we're going to cover first. We're going we're to cover verses 3 and 4 first. See if this thing works here. Or you can advance if it's not. Yeah. So verses 3 and 4. Do nothing. Now, now, wait a second. You may know these verses, okay? So let me prep you a little bit. Read these verses for what they say, okay? Listen, look at the words and listen to what he's saying because it's easy to see the poetry and the beauty of these verses and not let it into your soul. It's just very easy, okay? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That's the first part of the verse. Nothing. What is selfish ambition? It's not evil. It's not an evil thing. It is don't do anything in your life in order to advance yourself, period. So we're going to do a thought exercise because I, I, I don't know if you know how bad, how hard of a command this is. So young people, and when I say young people, I'm saying anybody younger than me, okay? So if you're, if you're in your 30s or you're a teenager, I want you to focus right here. I want you to think right now, what are your biggest dreams for the future? Okay, now, that's kinda, it's kind of out of nowhere, so you might be like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> but let me just run through some things. Maybe it's to go to so- so-and-so college, or to have so-and-so job, or to be married, or to, uh, to, to work in a certain profession, right? Or to have a comfortable life, or to be healthy, or to be well provided for. Now, you may not put words to those goals very often, but what you have to do is say, what am I striving for day in and day out? What am I working the hardest for? Now, the irony is, is usually there's a gap, right, between what we say is our goals and what we what we're working towards. Matter of fact, what most Americans are working towards is being the largest person on the street (laughs) because I'm maximizing my calorie intake and also having the most pleasure, right? 
In other words, if you look at how we live the average day, I'm maximizing my time in front of television, my time at a fast food restaurant. I'm using every dollar I can to live. The big word for that is existentially, to live for my existence right now. That's what I'm doing. But let's even say, let's, let's even check how you're living day to day. What are your real goals? If you, if you, your best self, is it really, I want to become a doctor. I want to be married. I want to be a mom. Now, most of those goals, I would bet, are not evil things at all. As a matter of fact, some of them are gifts of God. They're wonderful things. They are awful central motivations for life. Awful. Awful. Because they will drive you to act 99% of the time according to self and my own ambitions for the future. That's what Paul is attacking. He's not attacking evil in you. He's attacking selfishness. Now, in America, selfishness is culturally accepted and beautiful. You are so ambitious. You became an Olympian. Have you ever talked to an Olympian about 10 years after the Olympics? And they have no idea what their life is about anymore. And it's only about the glory days. Some of them become suicidal. And these are people that are the most ambitious and have, in some ways, the most noble human goals, right? To, to, to use every ounce of my self-control to become the best at something. Do you ever talk to a CEO who's been there a while? Who got everything he always wanted? Are they filled with joy and selflessness? No, they're driven. They're driven like no one before. Rockefeller, the richest man in America at his time, was asked one time, how much money is enough? You know what his answer was? One dollar more. In other words, it's never enough. It's the clear answer. Rockefeller's the only one who didn't see that irony, apparently, of that statement. It never satisfies. Now, it doesn't mean that having those dreams is bad. But those dreams, what do we do with them? We put them right at the foot of the cross and we submit them to the superior wisdom of God who says, I want your life to be an image of me. And you don't know which things will image me that right now you hate and are terrified of and which things will image me that right now you'd be like, oh, that's a good one. (laughs) You don't know. So lay it all down. Paul is this person by this point. Now, remember, this is towards the end of his ministry. He's He's been facing suffering and serving for 25 years with Jesus. He didn't get this attitude overnight. But he's saying nothing out of ambition. Nothing. What's the other word? Conceit is how it's translated here. That's a good translation. The real word is, is, is an old King James word, vain glory. It's a compound word that basically means don't do anything that's seeking your own reputation, period, right? My own reputation. Now, you talk to teenagers and young people, even the most Christian, godly ones. I want to be here. I want to be here. I want to... it, it is so wrapped up with a life that is honorable in the eyes of others. Even if they don't care what other people think of them, when they get there, they want to have a life that they think is enviable. Right? Even if other people don't, I don't care. I want it to be all that I want it to be. And you have kids that are paralyzed in college now from making any choice because no choice ultimately will satisfy them, and they kind of know it, right? Uh, I could be a doctor, but, man, doctor's hard. I could be a lawyer. But... And so they start to dissect it while they're in college, and they go, really, none of this is going to be the super life I want. And what I would tell you is you've got a cancer inside of you driving you to make your life about yourself. And then to tack on, well, then when I get there, I'll glorify Jesus. This is called, it was what I call a platform mentality of how you serve the Lord. I pick a platform. I want to serve the Lord from Congress. I want to serve the Lord from being a school teacher. And you're more married to the platform than you are to Christ. Does this make sense to you? And so you're angry with God every time the steps don't head towards that platform when he's like, I'm trying to make you more like Jesus through what is happening right now, but you're like, that's not my plan. That's vain glory. 
And you might say, I love Jesus, I love Jesus. But your entire life's ambition is that I get to a point that is enviable by others. That I end up retiring early and having a nice house and being able to travel. And my kids are all doing well. Most of those things are cancer for your soul if you're not already had learned through many trials and pangs to be on your knees before the Lord. In other words, if God were to give you a comfortable life, do you know what that would do to your sanctification? He basically says it's through many pangs and trials that you'll enter the kingdom of God. And we're always like, why, I'm not, why don't I get this or that? Because your heart is cancerous right now. And until all you want, all I want is that Jesus to be glorified in my body, whether by life or by death. All that life is is, 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 is Christ, and all that death is is gain. Until you get there, your compass in life is broken. It's broken. That's the command he gives this church. Do absolutely nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So what's the alternative? That's the don't. What's the alternative? But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Now, in church, we talk all the time about serving others, don't we? We do. And, of course, we rightly do. When is the last time the motive of your heart of serving someone was, they're more important than me? And I don't mean that guy's the pastor, so he's more important. You know, some sort of worldly way of evaluating. I mean because they're made in the image of God. That's the only reason they're more important than me in this moment. Now, hopefully, everybody in this room has had a taste of that. Do you know what I'm saying? I, I've, maybe it's on a mission trip. Maybe it's at the homeless shelter I volunteer at. Maybe it's just one selfless day when my neighbor needed me, and I was just like, contrary to what I do every other day, I'm just going to do whatever my neighbor needs me to do. Right? Maybe you've had a taste of that. If you have, I'm willing to bet that the joy of heaven was experienced in that moment. I'm willing to bet that. And this book is all about joy, by the way. It's a guy in prison, not knowing if he's going to die or not, filled to the brim with joy. Why don't we have that? Because we know we're supposed to serve, but what do we mainly do when we serve? We compartmentalize our extra time, right? We pick the thing that we like the most, like, well, I really get a lot out of it emotionally when I serve at the shelter, or I really get out a lot, a lot of it emotionally. Now, there's nothing wrong with being wired to love certain activities. of the, But you see what we're doing there. That's not the life of our lives laid down at the foot of the cross. That's, you know, in the margins, I've got to obey some of these extra commands, right, of serve your neighbor. And, okay, well, I've, I've got to figure out how to do that today. I've got about 150 hours blocked out out of 168 so, what can I fit into that last set? Yeah. If you don't know how your job displays Christ to those you work with and serve, it's a waste of your time. It doesn't matter if you run the place or you're the janitor. If you have not figured out how this exalts the name of Jesus, it's a waste of your time. So, get on your knees and ask, Jesus, how could I clean that toilet? How could I do whatever you've called my hands to do in a way that glorifies you? Because every moment is about that or it's wasted. That's what he's asking here. Consider the people around you more significant than yourselves. Now, that doesn't mean it will look the same for all of us, okay? Some of us are introverted. And so we're not going to mainly do do that by walking up to every person in pain and kind of saying, I'm going to enter into that pain. Some of you, are. that's exactly what God's wired you to do. For me, it's laboring hours and hours and hours over the word so I can get up here and bless people, right? That's the main thing, but I've got to be open to every opportunity in every context. When I'm at Starbucks ordering the coffee before the sermon, I can't ignore that person because this moment is a gospel moment too. So Paul's like, always do that. Always do that. Always be thinking of what's best for the people around me. And you know what he doesn't say? If you get it wrong, it's going to all be terrible. In other words, if you thought what was best is to do this, but that person hates you for it, you're like, man, I messed it up. Nope. He says, I don't care, because I look on the heart. And if you are seeking 
to be a blessing to those around me. You will honor me, and I will mature you in doing that. So we're not, a, we're not an end results motivated person. We're a heart motivated person. I want my heart to be like this verse. Okay, what else? Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. It's a very gracious way to say it. He's not saying, forget about the fact that you have to pay your mortgage, right? And just go and meet needs, right? No, he says, you're going to look after your own interests, right? You're wired that way. And he's not faulting that. He's just saying where you're going to make a mistake is to care about the interests of others. He also doesn't use the word needs. Because if you use the word need, you separate it from the heart of the person who has that need. It's very important. Me giving somebody some money because they're under-resourced does not think about their heart. But if he says the interest, what is he saying? What will actually move them closer to health uh, according to God's vision of that? So it could be a rebuke, and it could be an act of service. It could be all kinds of things. If I'm thinking about what is their interest in this instead of what's the human need or what are they asking for? No, no, no. Just like you do with you, Think critically about what they are in, what, what, what's really for their good. Okay, so this is the command I was talking about. Hopefully, all of you feel really bad about yourselves right now. <laughs> because, like I said, this is, this is, in my opinion, the hardest command in the Bible. Nothing from selfish ambition. Teenagers, don't think of anything about your future revolving around yourself and where you want to be. Nothing. Have you been programmed to think a different way? Yeah, we all are. Don't think that way at all, but instead, think about the people around me, how I can be salt and light to them. And you'll figure out gifts and things that, as you seek those ambitions, those will be God-honoring, right? Okay, that's the command. Now, the problem is, is this is an impossible command. There's, there's one of my favorite verses in Philippians, doesn't occur to chapter 3, where he says, hey, by the way, I haven't attained all of this. <laughs> Paul himself, after all this, is like, man, Paul, this is a crazy high bar. And he says, I'm not there either. Just relax. But this is my goal. This is my goal. And if I lose sight of this goal, I'll think I'm doing great when I'm really drunk on the world, right? So, So this is the goal. Okay, so... How on earth, this is, this is where the rest of the passage is, how on earth do we possibly live that way? I don't know about you, when I wake up in the morning, all that is in my heart every morning, no matter how long I walk with Jesus, is vainglory and selfish ambition. And it looks a million different ways. Sometimes selfish ambition is, I don't want to go to work, I just want to sit here and make a lasagna in the microwave and watch TV, Right? Sometimes vainglory is, I want to go to work because I have something great to say to the staff, and, you know, today is something I'm excited to work on. But it's completely disconnected from Jesus, right? And always I'm plagued every fresh morning. Thank God his mercies are new every morning. Every fresh morning I'm plagued with self-centeredness of who's supposed to get the glory from this day. Me. Because of my gifts because of my calling, no matter how good they are. Yeah. God's supposed to get it. That's right. She's pointing up. Thank goodness, because my question wouldn't be near as good as that, um, or my response. God gets the glory, and we have, to be, we have to have our compass reset every day. So how do we do that? Well, there's two ways he kind of points us to how we do that. Well, three, actually. The third is a future-oriented way. There's two active ways we deal with every day. One is don't forget the power of what Jesus has already done for you. It's basically what I would say. So uh, verses 1 and 2. Now, the word here, by the way, this is kind of a poetic construction. The whole first of this uh, chapter is written kind of poetically. That's why we, we think that the second half was probably a hymn that they sung because it's just structured so poetically. But this first part's written poetically, too, and you can see it. He says, if there is this, if there is this, if there is this, then do this, then do this, then do this, right? So it's kind of a poetic construction. But the word if is the literal word there in the Greek, but it's probably not the best word because we already heard Paul say, I am certain you guys are saved because you've been with me for 12 years. I know you're going to be in heaven because of that, right? We've heard him say these things. So he's not now going, you know, if you really know Jesus, that doesn't make any sense. So... Really, the best way to kind of uh, say what that means in English is since. It's a very similar preposition. 
since you have all this encouragement in Christ, since you are comforted by the love of God, since you have the Holy Spirit, since you love me and are sympathetic for me, he's appealing to all of those things. So what is he basically saying? Don't forget the benefits of all you have in Jesus and get disheartened. Encouragement in Christ. Why do we sing about the gospel over and over and over? Is it because every Sunday I come and I, oh, I forgot Jesus died for me. Thanks for that. You know, we, we don't forget. We just forget the power of it, right, don't we? We forget the identity of it. There is no sin that God still sees on your head. The one you committed an hour ago is on Christ. You're clothed in his righteousness. Does that encourage you? There is no sin for which the wrath of God is still pointed at you. It has been fully absorbed in the cross of Jesus Christ. Does that encourage you? There is no temptation except that which is common to man. And Jesus is faithful. He will give you a way to stand up under everything that you're feeling. Is that encouraging to you? That's that first phrase. If you have any encouragement in Jesus... Now, of course, we move on to new things all the time, right? So if we're not constantly looking back to what Jesus says is true, we'll we'll lose that encouragement, won't we? Think of the last really special compliment you got. Do you still feel good about yourself because of that compliment? No, you haven't thought of that in weeks probably, you know, however long it's been. So we have to remember constantly the real posture of God to us because of Christ. The second is comfort and love. You know, most of this vainglory, selfish ambition stuff, even for the non-touchy-feely people, it's all about love. It's all about love. I want to be loved. I want to be known and loved. We all experience love differently. Some of us really want to be thought of as smart and together and organized. Some of us just want to be known deeply. We're all different in how we want to be loved, but we all desperately want to be loved. What does the Bible say? You want to know how much God loves you if you have come to faith in him? Look at the cross. Look at the most precious thing inside the life of God and what he's willing to do to get to you. Why are you looking for love anywhere else? That's a, that's a fool's errand. And that love has always got mixed motives. Even your spouse has got mixed motives in why they love you. Some of it's because of the way you make me feel and how you serve me. It's not because of who you are. None of God's love is mixed motives. He died for you knowing every evil thing about you. While we were still sinners, Christ sent Jesus that way. He says, if that comforts you, that's power. If you have any participation in the Spirit, Jesus promised, when I leave, have you ever wanted to see Jesus and kind of talk to him and say, man, it would have been really good to hear the Sermon on the Mount in person. You know, I read that sometimes and I feel that. Jesus, you remember what, the, what Jesus said at the end when he was about to go back to heaven? Oh, this is going to be so much better for you when I get out of here. That's basically what he said. I'm paraphrasing. He didn't say it that way. This is going to be so much better when I leave because the Spirit of God will come inside and all the confusion about who I am and what I came to do will be gone. He will be there as a resource for you. All you have to do is listen and submit to that. It's there. Just listen and submit to it. And don't quench it. Don't grieve it. Yes, we can not let the Spirit control us, but he's like, the power to live like this is in you because I am in you. If you feel the participation of the Spirit, if you feel like, you know, in my life so far, I can point to some times where I know I have the Spirit of God inside of me. I've felt the conviction of him. I've felt the empowering of him. I've felt the release of gifts. I've felt the miraculous peace. I've felt these things. If if you have that, don't forget about it when you get a hard command. That's the power you're going to rely on. After this, he's going to say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it's the power of God in you that causes you to desire and to do what God wants. It's not you. So the fear and trembling is that I would somehow neglect that. 
Not that I'm not capable of it. Participation in the Spirit. The next is he appeals to their own relationship. This is a very deep relationship. And if you have good people in your life that hold you accountable, that love you deeply, that is incredible power to do what he does. If you have any affection or sympathy, now he doesn't put for me in there, but almost all scholars agree. What he's saying is, if you love me, right? This is what I desire. You're concerned about whether I'm getting enough food. You're concerned about if I'm going to die. If you really are concerned with me, this is how you can make me happy. This is it right here. If you have any love for me, that's why the church is so important. Because if the people that you love most all want you to be more like Jesus, that is power. Because you'll disappoint all of them when you step out of faithfulness, won't you? Now, it doesn't mean they won't love you. It means you'll break their heart in half. If you've ever had a good parent that wants you to be like Jesus, that is powerful in your life, isn't it? Because that person's heart will be broken if you wander away from him. So he appeals to that. So the first thing he's saying with all of this... Oh, sorry. The first thing was before. Don't forget the power that is in you because of what God promised he did in salvation. That's a past tense reality, right? If I, if I give my life to Jesus, everything I just said for the last five minutes is true about you. Okay, the next thing he says is the pattern of Christ's humility. So uh, in church, you've probably heard, we live Christ-like. We follow Christ. Um, one of the things that's a real struggle with that is Christ was a human being that did all kinds of stuff. So do I follow him today like he stormed into the temple? Do I follow him today like he walked on water? What, what? So I think a lot of people wrestle with, what does that mean to be Christ-like? And the Bible's answer to that is Christ-like in here, not out here. Christ-like in here. Now, it uses the word mind here um, uh, in this passage. It says, have this mind among yourselves. But really, this is attitude or mindset. In other words, this is the way you think about everything. This is, this is your posture towards life. Is the same posture of Jesus. So if you want to know what does Christ-like means, it means this right here. It means the attitude of your heart is similar to how Christ regarded himself and God and what I should do every day. And then he tells the story of the gospel. One of the favorite passages in the Bible, because in like three sentences, he summarizes the entire life of Jesus, but with one central theme, humility. Exchange selfish ambition for Christ-like humility. That's the main message of this text. Why? Because that will produce unity. Have you ever wondered, why is Paul so big on unity? Is he, is he like Martin Luther King? He's just, I, I just want everybody to be together. No. It's because of the image that he has of the body of Christ. It's supposed to be one body that all together, all together, when they're functioning all together, shows the world Jesus. And if it's just a really talented mouth and some arms that are making money somewhere and some legs that are running after whatever the latest craze is on social media or TV and some deacons in the back chattering about Game of Thrones, then whatever that, whatever that is, right, then it is not the body of Jesus. So he says, what's the biggest threat? What's the biggest threat to one body that displays Christ to the world, your own ambitions, your own conceit, your own desire to say, I'm going to make my life whatever I want it to be, instead of submission to each other in one body. So he says, you want to see how that's done? Look at Jesus. So let's read these verses. Though he was in the form of God. Can you think of a higher starting point for any of us? Jesus was with God. Jesus was omniscient, omnipresent all-knowing, perfectly loved, perfect lover, everything perfect. And he didn't go, I'm going to hold on to this instead of do whatever the Father wants me to do. Can you imagine a greater thing to release into the hands of the Father than equality with God himself? He says he was in the form of God, but he was born in the likeness of men. 
He took on flesh. And he didn't just take it on for 33 years. He still has it. He took on all the limitations. He emptied himself. Now, this doesn't mean he gave up his deity. It means the best way to kind of understand this is he veiled his deity. In other words, he covered it to where he's like, I'm not going to do anything, not one thing, or say one thing out of my power of deity. I'm only going to do what the Holy Spirit guides me to do according to the will of the Father. I'm not going to independently use the fact that I'm God myself. Think of the temptation of Jesus. They were all, be God, be God, be God yourself, right? Make these stones into bread. Jump off this temple. They were all, not anything necessarily evil. They were just, take the reins, Jesus, you're God. There's an easier way than God's plan of suffering for you to show the world who God is. You could do that much easier than this path of suffering. What did Jesus say? I never do anything that I don't see the Father doing. I never say anything that has been appointed to me by the Father. Are, are you kidding me? You have all the power of God at your disposal, and you never said, you know what? They kept me up all night. I'm going to miraculously get eight hours of sleep out of this two hours because these stupid disciples kept me up. Never once, right? You never once were making something out of wood with your dad and it went totally wrong, and you're like, I'll just fix this. (laughs) Never once, with all that power at your disposal, no, never once. That's humility. That is somebody who says, I'm not doing any of this out of my own ambition. I'm not doing any of this out of seeking glory for myself. I'm doing all of this to obey the Father. So he emptied himself by becoming human, but he humbled himself, which is the word he's by being obedient. Isn't it amazing that Jesus was required to be obedient and he actually learned obedience through suffering? Because obedience is easy when God's asking you to do all the things that you want to do that are comfortable. It's really hard when he's asking you to do something like go to the cross. And you don't think Jesus felt the weight of that? Go to the Gethsemane. Of course he did. He felt every ounce of weight like when God asked you to do something hard, like talk to your co-worker about Christ or speak to that family member who's rejected Jesus 50 times and you're like but that's going to be crazy uncomfortable that's what Jesus is feeling in Gethsemane times a million right this is going to be crazy uncomfortable (laughs) but he never once said I'll go my own way never once so we look to him He emptied himself by taking on the firm servant, being found in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the most shameful death imaginable. Imagine this. You're the president of the United States. You've worked your whole life, and you've moved up and up and up and up and up, and now you're the president of the United States. And yet there's some sort of coup Can you imagine that in this country? We're all so united. How would that happen? Um, There's some sort of coup, and they decide, this president, we're going to impeach. But instead of just impeaching him and removing him from office, what we're going to do is let everybody in the whole country, 350 million people, come by and spit on him. Can you imagine going from, I'm president, to every person in this country comes by and spits in my face? That's the cross. That's the cross despising the scorn. There wasn't one person with Jesus at that moment going, I feel for you, Christ, I'm here. Even maybe not courageously. There wasn't one. John and his own mother were hiding. He ministers to them. You know what Jesus says to every spit that lands on him? Don't hold this against them, God. Please forgive them for this. Because I know your plan is to use what's happening right here to bring many sons to glory. And I don't want to stand in the way, in any sense, of advancing the good news of what's happening right now. That's the model that Paul holds up. That's how you get inspired every day when you get up and you go, I don't deserve the way they treat me at work. The last thing I'm going to do is be gracious and forgive these people who are mean to me at work. How do you get inspired to do that? This is your model. This is the guy. Now, it doesn't mean you never say anything back. It means the only time you say something back is when you believe that will be the most gracious and uh, selfless thing I can do is to, to say, you know what? 
right now you're treating me very unkindly, and I care about you. But for me to not say that to you is to not to trust that you don't want to be that kind of person, right? So it doesn't mean you're always silent and you just take reproach and take hardship. It means you're always thinking what's best for this person. Do you do that in traffic? Sorry, this is a lot of theology. I got to get you back to relevant life. Do you do that in traffic? Is that your heart when you're driving to work? Do you care that it's not your heart driving to work? That's our goal. That's our model. Every day we look to Jesus and we say, I want to be a little bit more like that than I was yesterday. I want to turn from the ways that I was yesterday that weren't like that, and I want to do something new. That's the model. That's the pattern of Jesus' life. But he doesn't stop there. One of the reasons we're so motivated by vain glory, and one of the reasons, probably the first part of the sermon when I'm saying don't do anything to try to advance yourself, and you're like, how do you do that? Like, I've got to survive, and I've got to have a job, and I've got to want what's best for my kids, right? Was anybody thinking that? No? Am I the only one? Uh, it's like, how, how do I not do anything for myself? Well, God has wired us for glory, hasn't he? This is, this is the problem. So it's not choose this selfless, masochistic life where I do everything for other people and I get stomped on all day long and that's what God loves. Remember Jesus. What does it say in Hebrews? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. In other words, none of us like to be mistreated. Paul didn't like to be in prison. But he knew where this was headed. He knew the Father had already secured glory for him if he would just be faithful. If you don't know that every day, that the life that God exalts is the one that empties himself and humbles himself before him and never seeks his own but trusts the Father for every need, he's not telling you don't care about yourself. Right? Remember the command, love your neighbor as you love yourself. He's saying, trust that I will exalt you and don't exalt yourself. You want to see that? In the life of Jesus, therefore, very important word in the Bible. Don't ever skip over the therefores. Because Jesus obeyed to the point of death on a cross, because of that, not because of who he was before that, not because of all the miracles, not because he was the best teacher who ever walked the earth, because he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross, God has highly exalted him and set upon him the name that is above every name on earth. It's bigger than Donald Trump. It's bigger than Obama. It's bigger than anybody you can ever think of. So that at the name of Jesus Every knee will bow and shout, worship, glory, honor be to you. He even says, under the earth. Well, that's the place of those who've been judged. Yeah. At that point, they'll be like, they're they're no more reconciled to God. (laughs) They're no more remade by the Holy Spirit. But they will not be for all eternity going, that was unfair. They will say, That was what's supposed to happen. God is just, and I deserve to be here. That's my interpretation of that. There will be no fight anymore in eternity. There's no factions in hell that are trying to figure out, can we get out of here and raise it? It's over. Every knee is bowing and saying, only Jesus is worthy. Now, here's the part that's hopeful for you. Not only... I get to be with Jesus, which Paul already said in the first chapter. That's the best thing I can imagine, so I'm not worried about dying. What did God promise you if you walk faithfully with him? The glory of Jesus is yours. You will share it. You will reign with him. You will inherit it. Every time Jesus in heaven is worshipped, 
you will be a part of it, not just a participant of it, but caught up in that exaltation. You will be a life that God only sees through his son. So every time God looks at his son and says, well done, son, that well done comes to you. Every time for all eternity, God's favor will rest on you and your life will be exalted. Why are we clamoring to get people to be impressed with the way we dress, the job we have, the house we have, when God says, that's going to be the next trillion years. The God of the universe will look at you through the lens of his son and say, you are reigning with him. You have all the responsibility, all of it. And what will we do in response? I don't deserve any of that. I throw it right back at Jesus' feet as an act of joyful worship. Those are the things that can take you from selfish, conceited, Sinner to, in all things, in humility, I think of others higher than myself. I look to the interests of others above myself, and I'm happy about it. I'm happy about it. Let's pray.